Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young woman you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and cover his feet and lie down, and she will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and he was in a contented mood, he went down to lie down. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, "Who are you?" And she answered, "I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, my, for you are next of kin." He said. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will ask you. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am near kinsmen, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night, and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good. Let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, "It must not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor." Then she. Then he said, "Bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out." So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it into her, on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law, and she, who said, "How did things go with you, my daughter?" Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, "He gave me the six measures of barley, for he said, 'Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed.'" She replied, "Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but settle the matter today." Well, good morning again. I guess I'm back. Uh, July 30th. Uh, it's fair week. Did this didn't seem like a very uh, fair friendly crowd earlier? Did anyone go to the fair? Like two of you went to the fair. Um, uh, although we can be friends because I'm not a big fair goer either. I think the rides are scary and I get motion sick. Um, so I'm fun. Um, but if I go to the fair with my husband Scott, you might know him. He's on sound back there. We end up in the 4-H booth. And, and if you know Scott, he makes friends like this, and before we know it, we're canceling evening plans, and we've been talking to someone about pig prices in 2015 for five hours, so <laughs> I really don't love going to the fair. <laughs> when I was a kid, though, um, when I was a kid, I went to the fair for one reason and one reason only. Do you want to guess what that reason was? I didn't hear any of that. Mini donuts. Mini donuts. There was this little trailer 
Um, and this is in Glendive, so sorry, I'm going to burst your bubble. I grew up in Glendive, uh, so you can't go do this today. But there's this little trailer, and it was not like one of those cute little food trailers where the person gets like the old camping trailer, and they fix it up, and it's a really cute food truck now. I think it was like their active camper, and they would roll up to the fair, and they would make mini donuts out of this little kitchen in their camper that they'd probably been camping in last week. But that thing had the longest line at the fair. They were so good. So that's the only reason I'll go to a fair mini donuts. Okay, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. This morning, we're talking about Ruth, and if you've not been here for a couple of weeks, or maybe it's your first time, we are in the middle of the book of Ruth, and I wanted to really quickly just do a recap, because we're going to continue to build off of some of the themes that Adam's talked about for week one and two. So in week one, we met Naomi, and she was married to a man named Elimelech, and they were famine refugees. They went from Bethlehem to Moab to escape the famine. They had two sons. Those two sons married a couple of Moabite women. Unfortunately, all the men in this family died, and Naomi and Ruth made their way back to Bethlehem. And what we talked about that first Sunday was this idea of God's faithfulness and that sometimes God's faithfulness shows up in a person who helps us walk through these different situations in life. And that person for Naomi was Ruth. And then week two, we met another character in this story, and this is the character of Boaz. And so as it happened, Ruth was in his field gleaning, and Boaz really went above and beyond the letter of the law to show kindness and care for Ruth. And we talked about this idea that sometimes we are, in our lives, we are this Naomi-like character, where We're going through a lot, or there's a lot of trauma, and we just don't have anything to give, or maybe it's all we can do just to show up somewhere. And sometimes we're the Ruth character. Sometimes we've got Naomi's back, and we're working really hard to support her. And then sometimes we're like Boaz, and Boaz really doesn't need anything from anyone, but he props up Ruth with his time and his resources, and he really props her up. So that brings us to week three, chapter three, and my kind of theme for this morning is this idea of image bearing. We're just going to keep going. So it's this idea of image bearing and being active participants in God's story. So something Adam said last week got me thinking about how to start my message this week, and it was something like we live our lives based on the stories that move us, and that caused me to ask well, what makes a good story? I wanted to pull back the curtain a little bit and look at maybe the art or the science of storytelling. And so I called my friend Shannon. You know Shannon. She's up here. She plays keys all the time. She's an English teacher. And we had this great conversation about story. What makes a good story? What are the elements of a good story? So think of your favorite story. I was trying to think of my favorite story for this, and I realize I read a lot of uh, murder mystery or comedy. So we're just going to stick with Ruth, but you can think about your favorite story if that's helpful. So stories allow us to enter into this different world, or they allow us to perceive the world in a different way. There's something called characterization that endears us or makes us dislike the main character. And authors do all sorts of things to invoke these feelings from us, right? How are the characters speaking? How are they interacting with one another? What are their thoughts? What are their feelings? What are their emotions? What's their backstory? Can we sympathize with them? Are they unrelatable and weird? 
So I think this, with Ruth, this story, our main characters are very sympathetic. They've gone through this horrible traumatic experience and they're just trying to survive. So it's easy to be kind of sympathetic to our characters. We love a good uh, conflict and tension, right? So there's always some kind of conflict in the story. So what are some of the things that authors use to create conflict? Is it internal? Is it external? Is it with uh, another character or a villain character? I think in this story, it's a little bit more like conflict with the setting and the time and the, the patriarchy and the hierarchy of this, of this setting. It's not, maybe, maybe it is a little bit internal, but it's kind of like this survival story of them just trying to get through and survive. How do these characters overcome this conflict? And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I had never thought of before, was how do these minor characters in the story influence how we think about our main characters? How does the main character treat minor or static characters in a story? The best example I could think of this was, if you're familiar with Harry Potter, there's this little weird like elf character that shows up at some point and then dies at some point. I don't quite remember, it's been a while, but how does Harry Potter treat this little lowly, kind of weird, character, and he's a slave to this horrible nightmare of a family, and so everyone else treats this poor little thing like garbage, so how does Harry treat him? Like, really kindly, with respect, he's loyal, and he even kind of manipulates it, so Dobby, that's his name, I kept wanting to call him Gollum, and I'm like, that's a very wrong (laughs) storyline. Dobby, so how does Harry Potter treat Dobby? With kindness and loyalty, and he even kind of manipulates it, so he gains freedom from this horrible family. And that kind of makes you like this nerdy wizard character even more. So how do these minor characters, what do they tell us about our main characters? And we're gonna see that here in Ruth, and I'll point it out when we get there. So now we're thinking about what makes a good story and what are the elements of a good story. Let's get into our Ruth section for today. So we start with Naomi, and Naomi is speaking to Ruth. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, I need to seek some security for you that it may be well with you. So we start to see this shift in Naomi. She's focusing more on Ruth. I think she realizes she's older than Ruth, and Ruth is now this foreigner in a foreign land to her. And so she's going to take an active role in kind of seeking protection and security for Ruth. So let's go, let's keep going on. So Naomi says, now here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young woman, women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known until the man has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, so Ruth was a widow, so she would have been dressed in like an outfit that signifies to everyone else around her that she's a widow. And so now she's changing her clothing to signify she is ready for marriage or she's available for marriage. Now, I really wanted to figure out what the whole uncovering of the feet thing was. Um, I kind of failed because a lot of times in the Old Testament, feet or uncovering is meant to imply like sexual relations. And it's clear that nothing like that happens here. So the best commentary I read was, um, this is probably a significant action, but we don't know anymore. Sorry, that's all I got for you. (laughs) So our scene is gonna shift a little bit. We're shifting to the threshing floor. 
Now, the threshing floor is a place, it's usually outside of town, high up on a hill, so there's a good wind or a good breeze. And so what they do with the barley, they'd harvest the barley and they'd take it up to the threshing floor and they would thresh it. So you'd like hit it with sticks or a lot of times they'd use animals to trample around on the barley to thresh it out. And this separates the edible grain part from the inedible chaff and stalk part. So they thresh it all out. And then what Boaz is doing tonight is he's winnowing it. So what that means is they basically like throw it up in the air and then all that light inedible stuff like blows away and then the grain falls back down and you can eat that grain. There's your harvest. So combines today, I learned this as I was preparing. They do all of those things. They harvest, thresh, and winnow in like a matter of seconds. And we don't have time to tell you about the first and last time I drove a combine. So we can talk about that later. So what does Naomi say? What did she say? Well, she said, go uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. All right? And Reese says, great. All that you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. So let's keep going. So Ruth, she goes down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, he was in a contented mood. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So I think he's lying down there to sleep because, like, He doesn't want a thief or a robber to get his harvest. Then she came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, who are you? It was probably really dark, um, so he couldn't tell who she was. And then she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. So this would have been really risky for her to kind of walk outside of town alone in the middle of the night. And this is a big celebration. So the threshing floor was known for like its big celebrations after the harvest. And I don't know if you've been a part of like an agricultural community or something like that after like branding is done or harvest is done. There's always a really big party and celebration. And so this would have been no different. There would have been this big party celebration but it was known for getting kind of rowdy, and so this is just a very risky move for her. So what does Ruth do when she gets there? She follows Naomi's script for a little bit, and then she kind of tosses it out the window, and she initiates something on her own, and this is where I love, because Ruth just walks this line of, like, obedient yet courageous, and a little bit of, like, I'm going to take some charge here, too. So what does she say? Right, she's initiating this rescue of who? Of Naomi. And in turn, Naomi's family line and Elimelech's family line. So how do we know this? Let's get into a couple of laws that she talks about here, or that she references here. The first Mosaic law that she references is something called the Kinsman Redeemer Law. So this is a law that requires the nearest relative to purchase a man's land if he is forced to sell. So we know that Naomi and and Ruth are living on land that Elimelech owned, And so there was a process to like reunite this man with his land again, if that was an option later on, but without a male heir, they're kind of like in this position, they're a little bit stuck. So that's the first law here, and this was meant to like keep the land in the family too, so it didn't go to another tribe or family. The second law, buckle up, we'll get through this together. The second law is the Leverett law. And I can't read that, so I'm gonna read this in here. The Leverett Law is this, it requires a blood brother of the man who dies 
without a male heir to marry his widow. So the firstborn son of that union will take the place of the deceased man in the family tree. Well, what's the problem? Boaz is not the nearest relative, we're gonna learn. And Boaz isn't Ruth's late husband's brother. He's also not Elimelech's brother either. So by the letter of the law, he's kind of off the hook, right? He's not bound by the letter of the law here. But this is where I really love the story of Ruth because Ruth offers this revolutionary interpretation of God's law. She invokes the spirit of his law. What are the intentions behind these laws? And who are these laws meant to protect? I've been listening to this podcast. It's called A Bible in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz. And um, it's going to be like a Bible in a decade for me because I'm so slow. Y'all, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are long. And there's a ton of old, antiquated, seemingly misogynistic or sexist rules in these books. And it's hard to get through. But Father Mike is always quick to remind us who's listening. He's very quick to remind us the setting. What's the setting of this story? It was in verse one of chapter one, in the time the judges ruled. And then that tells us this time in ancient Israel was brutal and violent, very patriarchal, very hierarchical. And so what were the options for a woman whose husband had died at this time? What were her options? She had no sons, maybe she has a few daughters. What are her options? Nothing great right? That's been the first part of this story. Not good options at all. But what if there was a chance that as this widow, you would be taken into someone's home, and you'd be cared for, and you'd be protected, and maybe there was a chance you could have a son who could one day grow up and care for you. In that circumstance, in that time, in that culture, in that place, is that like a lifeline? Is that compassionate? I know it's hard for us to understand that, but at that time, it really offered protection for some very vulnerable people. And in my reading, I found this really interesting too because other people groups other than the Israelites had a very similar law to the Leverett law, but it did not require the man to like take in the widow and care for her and protect her. It was just like, do the deed with her until maybe she has a son, but if not, you don't really have to worry about her, you don't have to care for her. And so I love what the Mosaic Law does here because it requires care and protection for that widow. And so I get, even as I say it, I'm like, this is so hard to wrap my brain around because our culture and our society is just so far from where these people were living in this time and in this place. So back to this idea of the spirit of the law. This is something we touched on last week with the gleaning law. Remember the gleaning law where it said that orphans and widows could gather harvester on the edge of the field? But Boaz, what does Boaz do? He shows a ton of care by allowing Ruth to collect the best of the harvest, and he feeds her, and he gives her a drink of water when she needs it. So this idea of the spirit of the law is something that he kind of embodies already, and I think Ruth recognizes that. Something else that Ruth says um, is in verse 9 of, of chapter 3 here. And some of the original language interpretations suggest that um, what she says a little is a little bit closer to this. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And what I found really interesting, I'm not very good with the original language stuff. I have to rely fully on commentators. But what they said was the word for corner used here 
in her kind of request to Boaz is the same word as that for wing in verse 2, 12 that we read last week. So check this out. Remember this scene last week? Ruth finds herself in Boaz's field, and he shows all this care and kindness for her, and she's like, why are you so kind to me? I'm this foreign widow. And he says, like, I have seen all you've done for Naomi, right? You have left your father and your mother and your native land, and you've come to this people that didn't even know you. And so he says this, may the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So what Ruth is doing here is amazing. She is reminding Boaz of his own words, of his own prayer for her, and she's saying, and hey, would you fulfill that request? Would you be the fulfiller of your own prayer for me? It's amazing, it's so cool. So how does Boaz respond? How does he respond to this woman showing up at midnight saying, hey, I'm available for marriage, can you do this? How does he respond? Without a pause. This guy's incredible. This is what he says. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich and poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid, for I will do all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. So he recognizes this unfailing loyalty that Ruth has for Naomi, and he is willing to fulfill this request that she's seeking. But I think um, we have to stop on this phrase. He calls her a worthy woman, and this is so amazing. This is so countercultural because um, she's a, a widow. She doesn't have a husband. She has no sons. She's a foreigner. That's not a very, in their culture's eyes, per se, a worthy woman. But he recognizes her as being worthy for being this very honorable, noble, loyal woman. And what else? All of the assembly of my people. So this goes back to that thing I was mentioning earlier with the minor characters. All of this assembly of people, this guy's a wealthy, prominent landowner. So I'm assuming his assembly of people is quite large. And all of these other people know and recognize her for being a worthy woman as well. Pretty incredible stuff. But, but, there's a but at the end here, but there's another kinsman who is closer. But Boaz says, don't worry, if he won't fulfill this request for you, I'm gonna do it. So it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. If you come back next week, Justin's gonna kind of get to that good part for us. So he's a good guy, he's gonna settle the matter today. So Ruth is part of this smaller story framed within God's greater narrative. And I love this quote from Carolyn Custis James. She wrote a book, Finding God in the Margins, and she kind of goes through the book of Ruth in great detail. And she says this, image bearing is no spectator sport, but a vocation. And I think these three characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, really model for us this idea of playing an active role and initiating our role in God's world. What does it look like for us to be image bearers or active participants in God's world today? I think what happens in the world is our business, and we're meant to take some sort of action.
Now, I get that in different seasons of life, I think it's important to acknowledge that action or taking initiative means a bunch of different things, right? Like we talked about last week, sometimes we're Naomi, and we don't have a lot to give, if anything, and maybe just showing up is active enough. And maybe sometimes we're Ruth, and we have, for a short amount of time, all of the energy to be put into propping up that Naomi in our lives, and we are there for her. And sometimes we're Boaz, and that looks like taking a really active role. You don't have to accept a midnight marriage proposal, but it's a big active role that he plays. And sometimes in our lives, we are poised to take big action. I love this quote. Um, I'm going to kind of end with this quote here. It's from Father Carlos Martins, and he spoke at this Think conference that we got to go to a few months ago. And he said this, Every decision you make has a moral dimension. Choose what brings you closer to God. Because I think a lot of times it's these small little decisions or actions or things we say that point us towards or away from God. Because our, our moments and our thoughts and every minute of each day builds up to create the hours and days and weeks and months that we're here. And so I think often it starts with those little thoughts and those little moments. If I'm in a conversation with someone and I want to say this or this, which way is more honorable to God? Which way am I reflecting God in that decision? So we're going to give you a chance to take communion, and I think that we can just use this time to think about image bearing and and what it might look like for us to be God's hands and feet in our world, just in our small community. I don't think any action or thought or decision is too small to reflect God's love into the world. So, okay, band can come back up. Ushers, you guys can get ready. Um, So communion here looks like bread over here, wine and juice over here. Ushers are going to usher us out row by row. And then afterwards, Connie and I are going to get back up and lead us through communion together. So just hold on to those elements. I'm going to pray while the band gets up, and then we can get started with communion. Thanks, God, that you send your spirit into us, and you seek to dwell within us that we might reflect you back to our world and our community and the people we love and care about around us. We ask that you just take our everyday, ordinary, small parts in your bigger story. You send your spirit into us and just allow us to reflect you. Ask that you send your spirit here today to the bread and wine and just allow that to fuel us as we go from here. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.